0: I love a really good uh, Pentecostal Sunday, um, Pentecost Sunday, I mean, it gives you license to do all sorts of things, um, but I am going to read from my script, I have got a prepared sermon, just uh, letting you know, but um, what I do, love. I mean, uh, you know, last week, um, we, I am going to get back to my script, um, you know, last week we talked about the amazing kind of growth of Christianity since kind of, since day dot, and how it's like amazing today that we've got, you know, um, 3.2, 3.28 uh, billion Christians in the world today and uh, how the growing kind of countries uh, where Christianity is really flourishing, it's in China and um, Africa, and one of the fastest growing movement in oh, South America, and the fastest kind of segment of all that, believe it or not, hard not to believe, it's the Pentecostals, Right? And there's something about this tradition that really wants to marry together two things, um, which is much needed, actually, across all the traditions. It's a real trust in the power of God and a real sense of, actually, that God does things, an expectation around uh, encounter. And really, um, that's what we're trying to do at the very heart here of St. Augustine. So we're a church that's focused on teaching, practice, and community. But at the core of all that, of course, is is encountering God, right? How do we encounter God? Through teaching, practice, and community. And so, if anything, our um, wonderful Pentecostal friends are teaching us is take that seriously. And, of course, we have to take it seriously today, of all days, because it's Pentecost Sunday. We got it? All right. Oh, man, get me a white suit. That's what i want. Anyway, we're into this series. We're, um, uh, we, uh, and this is the third talk in a series, um, uh, Tefana Ateatua, the family of God, where we're exploring um, what the Bible means when it says that humanity is not a collection of um, isolated individuals, but rather this creature called humanity is, in fact, in the first instance, a diverse, multi ethnic family. And uh, part of the point the Bible is trying to make uh, is that you have to think about humanity not just being, you know, what does it mean to image God in the world? And it, as a diverse, multi-ethnic family, the idea that I've been trying to work with is just to kind of imagine that humanity images God in the world the same way that a multi-faceted lens would image something into the world. So humanity, we don't just think about it singly, think about humanity as this multifaceted lens and actually in its diverse unity, it's only in its diverse unity that it becomes the thing that it was created to be, which is uh, the image of God. And you know, whatever the Bible is about, um, what it's not about is actually producing a monoculture. But rather from start to end in the Bible, what you discover is that every tribe, every nation, Every language has its own particular splendor, has its own particular glory, has its own particular honor that when incorporated into this multifaceted image, our something of God's, I mean, something unique, something special about God's um, beauty and imagination to the world. So it's all incorporated in. The Bible's not trying to generate just a homogenous, soupy blend of gray. Actually, all this color, all this diversity is much needed because this is the way that God um, will be imaged into the world. So the image of the identity of humanity is, in fact, not a collection of you know, individuals, but rather is a single family made up of a multitude of nations. And the dynamic I'm trying to get at here is that the more that a nation and more that an ethnicity, the more that as people we identify with the person of Jesus, that doesn't mean that we lose our distinctiveness. It's actually the other way around. The more we identify with the person of Jesus, um, the actually, the rather the more our distinctiveness is validated and, in fact, enriched. And that's because what we see is that the need of we need other people and other people need us if we're going to form this multifaceted uh, lens. Now, I have to say that, you know, living in the late modern world, it's real, this is really, this is kind of new science for us um, Westerners. We often don't think about the human individual, the human uh, individual identity in this kind of way. And it really raises big questions. What does it mean to be, be a single or to have a single identity? Because it suggests that just like the many nations, um, is that me, by the way? Or oh, someone else got a mic on? Where is Mike? Shall I just get rid of this? It's me. What is happening here? All right, flick me a mic. Two, two. Here we go. We're back in business. Come on, nice nice move, eh? That's very smooth. Um, what I'm suggesting here is the human identity is just as though the many nations are required to form the one human family. So the single human identity is, requires the many in order for me to experience what it means to be a complete human. And I know that presses on our brains, right? It's kind of a bit of a, it goes pop. But, you know, what I'm saying is that the one can't be a one by itself. Uh, humanity consists of actually the humanity of other people. And I was trying to look for a really great way to explain it, but, I, you know, this is basically all I've got, except C.S. Lewis comes to my aid. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian um, uh, scholar of Oxford University, um, he was writing in one of his books called The Four Loves, and he's reflecting on the loss of a close friend. C.S. Lewis had um, this amazing friend group, Um, it's just, they were all writers, they were called the Inklings, and, um, which is not really a Marvel name, is it, you're not going to go down the pub and call your mates that, but, you know, that's that's what it was, a group of tweed wearing writers from Oxford, Um, we've all got different friends. He um, anyway, they had this amazing friend group, and a part of it was um, uh, J.R. Tolkien and um, another, another author called Charles Williams. And he was reflecting in this book about the loss of his friends, <clears throat> excuse me, Charles Williams, who died unexpectedly. And he writes this in his book. In each of my friends, there is something that can only... Uh, sorry. <clears throat> Gosh, what's happening here? And each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole person into activity. I want other lights other than my own to show all their facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having Ronald... uh, Far from... Far from having more of Ronald, having him all to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. The point that Lewis is trying to make here is that our human identity is not self-contained, but rather our human identity consists of other people's humanity. I can't be myself By myself, my oneness requires the other in order for it to be a full experience or a full expression of um, a human identity. And in fact, this is the very dynamic that's at play within uh, God's self. In Christian theology, they talk about God's self being actually made up of a diverse unity also, a diverse unity, a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the interchange of the of light, life, and love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that not only generates the life of God's self, but also the life of the individuals that make up the trinity. And the point that's being made is that the Father can't be the Father without the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit can't be the Spirit without the Father or the Son. And the Son can't be the Son without the Father or the Spirit. And so what we have is this diverse uh, unity and that characterizes God. And so it stands to reason that the creature that is going to image this God into the world also has to be a diverse unity. Does this make sense? Yeah, it has to be uh, a family. And, you know, what we see through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of um, the Holy Spirit to form the church has been the most diverse culturally and ethnically diverse movement uh, that has ever been seen in the world today. What we see in what Jesus is doing in the world today is exactly what he said he'd be doing. Restoring humanity back to God's self and restoring humanity to being a diverse, multi-ethnic family, which in its diverse unity can reflect or image God into the world. Now, what we've seen in recent history, if you look down the telescope, you turn it around, Telescope of History... What you see is actually this reflex to unity being played out in a number of different settings. You just flick your minds back to, you know, pre-World War One. You know, there's this idea of trying to create human unity via the um, via empire building, and you have, of course, the British Empire, or you have the Ottoman Empire, the Qing Empire of China. Post-World War Two, you have the trying to creation of some kind of unity through the narrative of fascism, particularly in Germany, or in Italy, or the narrative of communism, particularly in Russia and uh, Chinese communism. And what you see is through the history is that this is trying to create unity, but in the main, it's done through a narrative of sameness, not of a diverse unity, but through a narrative of sameness, trying to create human unity by having humanity under one emperor, or under one race, or one economic status. It's trying to create unity, not through diversity, but through um, another means, through you know, the narrative of sameness. Now, the irony of this is, and it's a tragic irony, is that one of the consequences of trying to create a unity via a narrative of sameness is that it silos humanity off. Strangely enough, this, tr- this narrative of sameness actually leads to the separation and segregation of humanity, and therefore the fracturing and this destruction of humanity. And in fact, the Bible talks about this, or hints towards uh, the reality of this, in a famous story in Genesis 10, it's the Tower of Babel story, and I just want to get to that now, just to kind of illustrate uh, this point. So let's hit there now. Oh, here's a drink. Helpful <clears throat> Genesis 10. Oh, the backstory to this is, um, in terms of the, how the Bible is unfolding at this point, you start with Genesis 1, of course. Genesis 10 is after the flood, the Noah story, and then Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, heading out into the world, and um, they're creating a couple of cities, for example, along the way, and so this is the early stages of the unfolding of the, of the human family, and so that's the, that's the kind of narrative setting for this little story. And it starts with this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise, we shall be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord has scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth." This is a story that's actually about the uniting of humanity around a central idea which is of the building of um, a nation state, oh sorry, of a city state. And you can see this, that's that's the idea that we're going to build this great city. We're going to be the greatest city in the world. And how are you going to know we're the greatest city in the world? It's because we've got a big tower. We've got the biggest tower in the world, therefore we are the biggest city in the world. So it's not only are there this kind of the idea of the creation of this huge city, this idea of a a city-state, but it's also that we are going to become the best people. And why are we becoming the best people? You can see here they're using the best technology to build the city. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. In the narrative setting of this book, um, this is like the very first civilizations, of which actually the only building materials they used were either wood or hewn stone. But these guys, these are guys that developed the technology to actually create bricks. And they're not just using uh, lime and sand for mortar, they're using bitumen. This is like the latest tech. So not only are we the most amazing city in the world, we've got the most amazing technology in the world. And that's all in service of saying we are actually going to be the greatest uh, people in the world. The idea here is to let us make a name for ourselves. The building of a great tower, the use of technologies, the idea of promoting uh, the self as being the greatest nation on Earth, this is a little bit of an elbow jab at Babylon, by the way. This is the this story is actually all taken in many cases from uh, you know you can read all this. It's in the um, it's called the Enuma Elish. It's the story of how Babylon Babylon built its um, city and became a famous you know famous nation city. And and Genesis is giving them their elbow uh, along the way. But here's the next point that I want to make. The thing that really gets God's attention is not necessarily the amazing tower. It's not necessarily the fact that they're using the latest technology. It's actually this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Look, they one people. And they have all all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. What really grabs God's attention here is this is the forming or the trying to unify humanity around a narrative of sameness, of creating a homogenous culture. And therefore, God steps into that before it actually breaks apart and is destroyed. So God steps in and breaks apart um, this what's happening here in order they don't be destroyed, um, as it says here. So the Lord comes down, confuses their language, and scatters them. So they can't understand each other. Now they get scattered. Um, uh, Genesis 10 tells us where they get scattered to. And they get scattered under the three main ancestors of Abraham. Uh, sorry, of Noah. Just hold all this on your head. So there's 70. 70 people get representative, uh, representatives and they get scattered to three major areas. The first area that they get sent to is um, North Africa. This is the 30 representatives of the Sons of Ham. So they get sent and they get occupy North Africa Egypt, Libya, Sudan, and the coast of Somaliland. The next 26 representatives are the ancestors of Shem, and they occupy the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Peninsula, Mesopotamia, and Iraq. The 14 representatives are connected to Japheth. They are sent to occupy Israel, Palestine, Syria, and a little bit of Iran, and then Turkey, Greece, Crete, and Cyprus. Now, what's the point of all of this? Why does God do this? Well, of course, God is wanting humanity to fill the earth, to become a family of nations. And in separating them, you've got the families of Abraham and Noah actually forming and filling the earth and becoming a multinational family. But they're to wait until the Holy Spirit to come for them to be united. And that is the power, and that is the point of the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Let me show you how this works. When the day of Pentecost came, I've got to stop there. There's, there's such, so many juicy details in this little text. We'll get there. But firstly, the first little detail here, Pentecost, is, it's, uh, 50 days after, um, it's 50 days after, it's 50 days after, after Passover. And this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, celebrates the giving of the law. And when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, it was associated with um, lots of, there was a great wind and there was a great fire associated with that. And so the giving of the law was about a covenant relationship with, between Yahweh and Israel. This was about God being present to Israel. That's what the Feast of Pentecost celebrates, the coming of God's presence to be within Israel for them to be a distinct people. The second thing to say is part of this festival is actually the festival of first fruits. And what that meant was like when you had a harvest, you um, you bought the first um, elements of the, that were just beginning to ripe. So the very first grapes that were you know, becoming ripe, the very first ears of wheat that were coming to be ripe. And you'd bring them into the temple and you would celebrate the whole harvest by evidence of these first fruits. So just keep these two things uh, in mind. So let's keep back to the text. So the day of Pentecost came, just upload all that. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is the disciples. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Just like when Israel received the law and God's presence, so the disciples now have the very presence of God in their midst. That's the first part of Pentecost. Let's go to the second part. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because, they, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazed, utterly amazed, they said, "Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, which is not a compliment?" Then, how is it that each of us hears them in our in our native language? Now, interestingly, here this is like this is the Greek that has been trans- of the Hebrew, right? So you've got to think of the Hebrew categories in which these places are related to, and remember Genesis 10. This is where all these people are gathered from. This is who the spirit is gathering together. People uh, from the Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, they are from the region of Iraq, of of Iran, sorry, residents of Mesopotamia, Iran, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, that's um, that's, sorry, Turkey. And then you've got to uh, the west, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Can you see what has just happened here? In the sending of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is regathering what was scattered in Babel. The Holy Spirit is regathering what was scattered in Babel and reconstituting the human family, to not just be a multi-ethnic family, but actually to be a one, a unified multi-ethnic family through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work is actually not just to restore people to God, That is utterly true, but the Spirit's work in this section here is speaking to the way that it reunites the family of God so that it can image God once again in the world. And of course, this is the work that continues today. 2,000 years later, what we're seeing is the Holy Spirit continually uh, gathering people reconnecting them to God, and then reconnecting them into uh, the family of God. And you know what, it's actually, the Bible is making a, an extraordinary claim at this point. The Bible is making, an, an, it's, it's, it's nearly, it's hard for us moderns to swallow. It's making an extraordinary claim. The Bible is saying that the dream of humanity becoming a family again lies in allowing The diverse unity of the triune God, whose nature is self-giving love, to form the very center of our lives. The dream of humanity being a family again is allowing the triune God to form the very center of our lives. And why is this the case? That's because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the power of God is not only there to reconcile humanity to God, but it's actually also to reconcile Jew and Greek slave and free, male and female, to be one in Christ. And what it's saying is that I can't actually fully realize my humanity while any other reality, apart from the diverse unity of the Trinity, is at the center of my life. And it's only then, as I share in the self-giving love of God, that I can take my place within the diverse unity of the one multinational family of God. I can only fulfill my identity as I become an image-bearing creature. That's the definition of what it means to be a human. So what it's actually also saying is this. You know praying for somebody? Actually praying that they might encounter Jesus? are Praying for a person that they might encounter the Spirit or when you share something of what God has done in your life? What this is saying is actually that small act is quite possibly the most humanizing thing that you can do for another person. And of course, kindness, yes. Of course, compassion, yes. Of course, justice, yes. Of course, you know, lavish, extravagant uh, generosity. Of course, working creatively to bring out the beauty and goodness of God in the world. Of course, creating amazing workspaces where people discover their vocation and step into what has, called, you know, God has got calling, you know, God is calling them to be. Of course, all of that. But you know what? These things, as good as they are, are in fact just precious reflections in the life and goodness of God. And what people really need is to encounter the source of that life and goodness and love. And so with this in mind, you know, one of the most important humanizing things that we can do is actually pray one of the oldest and simplest prayers. It's to open yourself by praying, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come into my life. Come with your power. Come with your presence. And we pray this as the in the New Testament says. We don't pray this just once and done. But the Bible says to pray this continuously, and we do that continuously because it takes seriously the fact that God is a person. God is a person. It's not just like um, a theory. We pray. We invite God into our life because it takes seriously the personhood of God. But we also pray continuously for God's Spirit to come into our lives because we are people. We're not an algorithm that God's just trying to iron the bugs out of and off we go. Actually, no, we are people. We need God's infilling Spirit into our lives every day because it's God's Spirit that's working through us into the world that gets expended every day. So often we think about you know the the Christian life is being like you take a deep breath right at the start and then you try to run the marathon and you kind of get puffed like I mean you know ten feet into it right. The idea is not just to take deep breaths every now and again and be running. The idea is to be actually being constantly filled with the Spirit, breathing in and out. Hot, you know, In many respects, of course, Pentecost is an event, like it happened historically, but for us, it's supposed to be something that happens day by day. We need to have our own Pentecost moments, not just because it's wonderful to be filled with the Spirit, but it's because it makes us human beings. We're not self-contained kind of creatures. We're porous beings who are deeply dependent upon the breath of God and upon the power of God. That's the thing that makes us come alive. That's the thing that makes us uh, truly human. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to take um, bread and wine together. And again, it's another little symbol. It's another little suggestion that actually what we need in our life actually comes from the outside. It comes from God. And as you um, you will be receiving bread and you'll be receiving wine, we don't take it. Grace is given to us. The Spirit is given to us but you have to be the one who receives it. Um, Augustine's got this great line the Lord sends the wind but we've got to hoist the sail and I think it's the same for us and I want to have that as our encouragement uh, this morning as we come into land is that while the Holy Spirit is present and wants and moving and breathing and moving in our lives it's up to us to hoist the sail. It's up to us to receive, to accept, to be open, to chase, to be seeking the power and the presence of God uh, in our lives.